Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Carlos Alcaraz is Indian Wells champion. He beat Daniil Medvedev, ending his 19-match winning streak. And he did so in blowout fashion. 6-3-6-2 in the Indian Wells final. It was not a final that brought a lot of drama. It is a final that I am very interested in breaking down for that very reason. This was the first time we've really gotten to see the Medvedev-Alcaraz head-to-head in earnest. Now, Medvedev played Alcaraz-Wimbledon 2021, where Carlos was just underdeveloped, not fully formed, not the Alcaraz that we know him to be today. And it was so exciting to get you know, a a real uh, elite version of Carlos Alcaraz against such a confident version of Daniil Medvedev playing his fourth consecutive final. And whenever we get a match that is built up to this extent and it becomes a match that isn't very close, it's always interesting to dissect how did this happen? I'm going to give you one tease that will sort of preview where I'll be going with my analysis. And it is the following. From the very first game of the match, I thought Medvedev looked a little different. And I thought Alcaraz looked a little different. (coughs) Sorry, had to cough. Um, I thought Medvedev looked abnormally impatient, Alcaraz looked abnormally patient. There are a bunch of reasons why I think that may have been the case. And there are a bunch of different ways in which that had an effect on the match. That's what I want to get into. I'll also talk about my general takeaways from a Daniil Medvedev standpoint, but I want to start with my general takeaways from Carlos Alcaraz's perspective. Uh, First, it is interesting to think back to where we were at with Carlos Alcaraz before the event began, which is that, well, there were health questions, and frankly, given all of the circumstances, a subpar Indian Wells would have been fairly excusable. This is his first hardcore event of the year, He suffered the hamstring strain, looking very hobbled by the end of the final in Rio de Janeiro. And we weren't quite sure what we were getting. Now, I thought that we would get a fairly 
healthy Carlos Alcaraz, and it was apparent that's what we were getting from his first round match forward. But all in all, a subpar Indian Wells would have been excusable. No excuse necessary. No excuse necessary. The scoreline is certainly notable. The fact that he won this final 6-3-6-2. Well, it's not even the most... It's not even his largest margin of victory in a Masters 1000 final. Because Alexander Zverev last year in Madrid won even fewer games in the Madrid final. So it's the second time, by my count, unless I'm forgetting one, where he's made a Masters 1000 final completely uncompetitive. At his age, that's impressive. He is now the youngest player to have won both Indian Wells and Miami. So the career sunshine double, he's the youngest player to have ever completed the career sunshine double. Little feather in the cap there. Of course, he'll have a chance to become the youngest player to reach the, uh, or to accomplish the actual sunshine double. About 14 days from now, he'll have a chance to do that, potentially. Um, I'm not saying he's going to be in the final. I'm saying, I'm saying next event, he will have a chance to do that. The last thing, and perhaps I buried the lead here, is that he becomes world number one again. I got to be honest with you. It doesn't seem like that big a deal to me. Just doesn't. I think that getting to number one for the first time is always a really big deal. Everybody wants their career high. Every top player wants their career high ultimately to be number one when they retire. They want their career high to be number one. Now, with Alcaraz, we haven't been left in a lot of suspense as to whether or not that will actually, you know, happen. Uh, but, you know, for a guy like Pass, for a guy like Rude, who was one match away, in general, it's a really big deal to try to get to number one for the first time. Obviously, that's not the case for Alcaraz. He's already been there. Uh, the second thing that I think is a very big deal, even if you've been there before, is to end a year at number one. It means that you compiled the best results over the course of a calendar year, and I think that's a big deal. For Alcaraz, neither of them really apply in, in this case. And lastly, we could be building up this kind of arms race between Djokovic and Alcaraz, but doesn't that feel almost invalid when Djokovic didn't have a chance to actually compete uh, for the number one spot here at Indian Wells? So it's not as if we're able to really frame this as a Djokovic, you know, or, or Alcaraz, you know, overtook Djokovic because Novak really has no say here. And we won't see Alcaraz and Djokovic play in the same tournament together until April here in 2023, which is really a shame given the prevailing storyline at the very top is quite obviously centered around the Djokovic-Alcaraz rivalry. Or to this point, I should say, lack thereof rivalry because we haven't seen him play enough. All right, those are the takeaways for Alcaraz. As far as his actual performance in this match is concerned, getting to the final, this was probably the best version of Alcaraz I've ever seen. And if it wasn't the best I've ever seen, then it was still my favorite that I've ever seen. Because it wasn't about, you know, maybe I've seen Alcaraz play better matches where the shot making is out of this world and the, the high octane tennis is incredible and he's 
filling up the, the highlight reel and making unbelievable defensive plays and offensive plays and it's just a barrage of explosive talent in your face. Maybe there have been occasions where Alcaraz has done that. But this was not that kind of match. The reason why I think this was the most impressive performance of Alcaraz's career is because it was the most disciplined I've ever seen him. It seemed like he made a commitment to making high percentage decisions and it gave him an asset that I think he's always been capable of, but he's never really unlocked, which is that consistency for all of the things that I've praised Alcaraz for and that we've all praised Alcaraz for, for hitting the daylights out of the ball, for covering the court better than anybody for having this complete offensive repertoire where we're seeing an incredible level at net, drop shots, lobs, slice, angle, pace, cross court, down the line, everything. This unbelievable offensive skill set for all of all of the praise in every oh, attitude, attitude Mental, hustle, right? Like all of the things that we've always praised Alcaraz for, which is a really, really long list. Have we ever been like, oh, he never misses? He's so consistent? No, that's the one thing that, and I've talked about it before. Murray had that, Nadal had that. I'm just going to use the past tense. Don't read into it. Uh, Djokovic had that, right? Like coming up, especially, and I think even Federer as a young player had that. Like, man, the guy doesn't miss a lot, even though he's super offensive. He's still pretty disciplined, all in all, especially the young version of Federer. Alcaraz didn't have that. That's the one missing piece. And in this match, I felt like he put that missing piece of the puzzle in place. He stamped it down. And to me, he was the very best version of himself because he made an incredible commitment to high-level shot selection, to which I've never, ever seen him do. Carlitos clearly wanted to stay solid in trading from neutral in this match. He usually rejects neutrality fairly quickly, even if that means attacking from a tough position. And that results in errors. It also results in a lot of spectacular shot making. But I think the headline in this match, at least from neutral, was that Alcaraz's success did not hinge on hot or cold shot making, it wasn't necessarily always on his racket as it generally feels like it always is. Instead, this performance felt thoroughly repeatable. It felt like if Alcaraz played this match 10 times, he could have done exactly this 10 times because he didn't need to do anything spectacular here. He didn't try to do anything spectacular here. He played within himself. He played patient. He played high percentage. And this, generally speaking, it took away Medvedev's path to victory. At least in rallies. The serve thing is significant with Medvedev. These are bad conditions, but the serve thing is one thing. But in general, we know that Alcaraz is going to be a better finisher than Medvedev on these courts. We know he's going to attack better. 
We know he's going to hit more winners. But we'd think that surely Medvedev will be the more solid player and he will commit fewer errors. With Carlos playing this kind of style, with Carlos bringing this discipline to the court, it took away Medvedev's path to victory. Here's my favorite stat to highlight what I'm saying right now. In rallies, nine shots or more. There weren't that many of them. There were uh, there were 20 of them. Um, I'm sorry, there were 18, actually. No, there were 19. No, there were 18. Sorry. There were 18 rallies, nine shots or more. You can put that in the blooper reel. Alcaraz won 12 out of the 18. Guess what the unforced errors were? According to Infosys. Alcaraz 0. Medvedev 6. That's right. Unforced errors in long rallies. Medvedev 6. Alcaraz 0. That's unbelievable. I would have never in a million years predicted that. Now let me also say that Alcaraz offensively did not suffer. And it's very hard, and this, this has been my one hesitation. I've always wanted Alcaraz to play with a little bit more restraint, play more within himself, increase the discipline. At the same time, you need to be very careful that you don't take away his personality. He enjoys the game so much. He has a blast on the tennis court. It's a great asset. And his personality and how he wants to play is clearly an attacking style. He said that from the start. You don't want to take that away from him. And I, I feel he still had that. I don't think his offense suffered. I thought he was still crushing attackable balls in rally. Just always from good positions. There was always an opportunity that presented itself, whether it be Medvedev out of position, the incoming ball being short, being weak. There was always something that suggested that Alcaraz had the green light and could could take a big rip to try to build or finish and do it in a high percentage manner. But even more so than attacking balls in rally that were short or attackable, he brought the the offense early in the point, especially on serve. The net rushing was relentless. Tons of net rushing. Serve and volley. Plenty of it. First serve plus approach shot. Plenty of it. Uh, first serve plus drop shot. All the time. Attacking second serve returns. Yup. That was a part of the Alcaraz attack. Why is that good? Well, Medvedev's not in good position to defend after he hits a second serve. So that takes away Medvedev's defense. All these things do. The serve and volley was executed at the highest of high levels for Alcaraz. I was curious to see how Medvedev would... I, I couldn't wait to see Medvedev's drop shot retrieval. I talked about it about this in my post-match videos. I was very excited to see Medvedev's drop shot retrieval against Alcaraz's drop shot. Because I think that Medvedev is incredible when he chases down drop shots. I think he plays it so well. And we know how good Alcaraz is using the drop shot and using it in combination with other things like his lob, which is also exceptional.
Medvedev's drop shot retrieval didn't even matter in this match. It didn't matter because it felt like the vast majority of Alcaraz's drop shots were so well selected that Medvedev couldn't chase him down. Medvedev was not there. He hit him for winners. He missed some, but the ones he didn't miss, generally speaking, he hit him for winners. I remember Medvedev getting to two drop shots off the top of my head. One, he he actually did what I was talking about, and he uh, hit a topspin backhand off the drop shot, and he, he hit it just wide. And then the other one, he hit a great redrop and actually won the point. But overall, Alcaraz selected his drop shots so well that most of them were hit for clean winners. Um, so early in the rally, Alcaraz was incredibly offensive, especially with his net rushing. Winners on in the 0-4 through four rally category was 14-2 to two Alcaraz. I think a lot of that came at net. I think a lot of that came via the drop shot. I don't think he was trying to blast through Medvedev. I think he was just being smart about it and attacking in ways that are always going to be more effective against Medvedev's defensive style. Want to know what winners were in five plus rallies? Five to two. Still Alcaraz in front. Alcaraz five, Medvedev two. But, and and this is, by the way, on baseline shots. Um, oh, I'm sorry. No, it's not. That That's total. So winners were five to two, five plus. So you could see much closer in the winner's department after that first, you know, initial zero through four shots. And that's because I think most of Alcaraz's aggression was right away. Serve and volley and the plus one ball. After that, I feel like he dialed it back and got very disciplined. Aggressive when he had to be, aggressive when there was an opportunity, but always within himself. How did Alcaraz do this? Like, why was this different? Let's attack that question. I think maybe Medvedev's reputation helped Alcaraz here. Because if I were Juan Carlos Ferrero, I know what I would have told Carlos before the match. I would have said, Charlie, you are not going to be able to finish points as quickly as you're used to. His defense is incredible. He will get everything back. He will make all the returns. So if you're in a baseline rally, it's one thing serving volleying. That's a good play. It's one thing drop shotting on the first ball. That's a good play. But if you are in a baseline rally, it's going to be hard to just blast through him. So you have to be willing to be patient if you play Daniil. He's going to require patience because, because he's going to keep the ball deep in the court and he's not going to miss and he's going to play great defense. So you have to be willing to hang with him a little bit. He can't hurt you, okay? But he will allow you to beat yourself. Don't beat yourself. Accept neutrality and be patient. That's what I would have told him. So could it have been Medvedev's reputation as one of the best defenders in the world that actually just helped Alcaraz stay patient? Like, oh, I'm playing the most consistent player on tour. I better be consistent too. Because I'm not going to be able to blast through this guy like I can blast through everybody else. Maybe that was it. I don't know. Sometimes... When you play somebody who is so great, it can make you rethink some things. Now, 
later in the analysis, I'll talk about how that could flip the other direction. Keep in mind, man, my, my Alcaraz preseason wish list, and, and I talked about it with Steve Flink after the Australian Open as well, and we agreed. Serve, you know, first serve, that's item one. Item two was shot selection. Um, well, actually, no, you know, I lied. With Steve, we talked about handling the expectation and the pressure. Uh, but okay, so then for me, item number three was shot selection and just making fewer errors, which he did. All right, now let's talk about Medvedev. The question always is, whenever there's a blowout like this, you know, how much was how much was it the player who won playing great? How much it was was it the player who lost playing subpar? Look, it was both, but for Medvedev, and again, we saw this right away, right away first game, first darn game. Unforced errors from neutral for Medvedev. Unforced errors from attacking positions from Medvedev. Off the ground. Oh, whoa. Wait. Daniil's missing. Daniil's not supposed to miss. Daniil doesn't usually ever miss. Why is he making unforced errors? Because that's not Medvedev. Medvedev doesn't make unforced errors from the baseline. In this match, he did. What happened? You can watch how, you know, how they were happening, and it was very clear. Daniil abandoned his own game. And he didn't do it after being down, you know, a break or after losing the first set and being down three love. That's not when Medvedev abandoned his own game. Medvedev abandoned his own game as soon as he walked out of the tunnel. Because in the very first game, um, we saw forehand unforced errors from Medvedev trying to force the issue and attack off the ground. And Medvedev usually comes out of the gates. Sometimes Medvedev will start to play more aggressively, but it's almost always when he starts to build confidence after, you know, the after he works his way into the match and he's built more confidence and more feel, or it's because he's losing and he's trying to up the ante a little bit and raise his level. But to do that straight away is just flat out uncharacteristic. Um, and it's not what Medvedev is great at trying to play offensively from the back of the court. It's not what he's great at. He's great at working a point, building a point, relentless pressure and grinding down, outlasting. Um, that's what he's great at against Alcaraz's speed, especially he was never going to have a ton of success, in my opinion, being an aggressive player. And he tried to be an aggressive player. Uh, let me just highlight this. I mean, this is what it looked like to me. It looked like 2018 Medvedev. If you watched Medvedev before he became Medvedev, so before summer of 2019, this was a guy who clearly had a great first serve and a great backhand that was tough to deal with, but somebody who was erratic. He had strange technique. 
He would slap forehands around. He would miss a ton of forehands. He still thought he was an aggressive player. He still thought he was an attacking player. And the way Medvedev changed, you know, transformed into a top player was he realized, oh, no, I'm a counterpuncher, actually. I'm, I can get an amazing shape. I'm a great mover. And, oh, I'm a counterpuncher. Now I'm a great player because I never miss. Medvedev went back to 2018 and tried to become an attacking player in this match. And he started making errors. And why was he doing this? Why? Same question we asked about Alcaraz. Why did Alcaraz get more patient? Why did Medvedev get more impatient? I think the answer is the same. It's because of Alcaraz's reputation. It's because Daniil felt like he had to do more. Because clearly, he did not trust his defense to be good enough in this match. Which is kind of amazing. Because of the, the things that Alcaraz does in attack, because he hits bigger than almost anybody else, nobody combines power and net rushing to the extent that Alcaraz does and taking time away to the extent that Alcaraz does. Nobody combines all these things to the extent that Alcaraz does off of both wings, plus variety, plus the best drop shot in the world. Nobody does this. And Medvedev was like, I don't think I am going to be able to just D up and cover the court against Alcaraz's attack. That clearly, that's to me what it looked like. So Medvedev got more aggressive and Medvedev made more errors. What would be my advice to Daniil? Don't do that. Play your game. Now, if the head-to-head -head was 0-3, to because this goes, this goes a couple of ways, right? When Medvedev played center in the Rotterdam final a couple weeks ago, I criticized Sinner for the opposite. I'm, I thought, okay, Yannick played a good match here, but he just played his game. He didn't change anything. And Medvedev is an exceptional opponent, meaning you need to make some exceptions and you need to change some aspects of how you're playing. For example, play, play to the forehand more. You know, Sinner likes backhand and backhand. Not against Daniil. Change that. Sinner likes to stay on the baseline. Not against Daniil. Come forward. Change that. So... There is something to be said for changing your game, adjusting your game versus a certain opponent. Uh, the big difference is Sinner had a, a historical head-to-head -head issue trying to beat Medvedev. That was not the case here. Medvedev has played Alcaraz once and won, but essentially they've never played, in my opinion, because I, don't, I just don't think that 2021 match really counts. So... Play your game and see, and see what happens. And make Alcaraz execute at the highest level for two sets. Medvedev didn't really do that. Like, look at just... I'll take one example, and I know because it was a blowout, I'm not really getting into specific moments in the match as much as I normally would in a post-match analysis, but let's take a look at the second set love-all game. Here's how I have it tagged. Uh, Medvedev backhand unforced error. Medvedev serve plus forehand down the line approach shot and a butchered backhand volley. All right. Love 30, Medvedev forehand unforced error attacking off of a ball. I said attacking off of a nothing ball right through the middle of the court. Uh, 
So read through the lines there. That's a ball that some players are very comfortable attacking. For Medvedev, it's actually a clear weakness trying to generate with his forehand from the middle off of a low pace ball. And then Love 40, double fault. Attacking unforced error, volley mistake, regular neutral unforced error, and a double fault. That's very un-Medvedev-like. After the first set, right, start of the second set, he gifted a break. So how was Medvedev's level? Not good. Very bad. Uncharacteristically wasteful and error-filled performance from Medvedev. But it wasn't as if Daniil was not uh, reacting to how he felt he needed to play to make up for the things that Alcaraz can do. But that's extremely significant because that is usually the hallmark of greatness. When when you're looking at a player who is is so good that one of the best players in the world feels the need to change their game in order to beat them, that is a high compliment to Carlos Alcaraz. One aspect of the match I also want to cover is the serves. Is the serves. Because everything I've really talked about thus far has to do with... Well, I, I did talk about serve and volley and some of the uh, varied and creative aggression that Alcaraz brought to the table behind his first serve. But uh, the serves was, were also a big part of this. Can't be ignored. Medvedev did not have an ace in this match. First time since 2020 where Medvedev has gone an entire match without serving an ace. First serve points win percentage for Medvedev. 61%. In order to find one that low, you have to go back to Mallorca against Bautista Agut last year in that final. Average first serve speed, 117 miles per hour. Could be better. First serves unreturned. Alcaraz, 26%. Medvedev, 16%. I do want to say this, though. There were tons of times where I felt that Medvedev missed returns in the net because Alcaraz was serving volleying. I thought we saw that a ton. Just trying to get the return low because he knew that he needed to. And it wasn't really a great Alcaraz serve that forced the return miss, it was really the fact that Alcaraz was coming in that forced the return miss, which is just as impactful. It's not taking anything away from Alcaraz. It's just adding a little bit of nuance to that number, which is 26% first serves on return for Alcaraz, winning by 10% against Medvedev. Now, obviously, that's a red flag in this matchup for Medvedev. Let's also say that Alcaraz did it to Sinner as well. He won the first serves on return battle against Yannick Sinner and Daniil Medvedev. All right, let's let's think about what we're talking about here again. Coming into this season, two things on the wish list for Alcaraz. Oh, I guess I need to change that to three. Three things on the wish, li wish list for Alcaraz. Uh, make less unforced errors just by... Uh, reeling, you know, reeling it back a little bit in the aggression department at times, picking your spots to get consistent, handling pressure and expectation, 
and improving the first serve. We're checking a lot of boxes here. Alcaraz made 76% of his first serves. He won 81% of his first serves. And the serve for Alcaraz was exactly what it needed to be. I really loved his slice serve on the deuce side. I don't think he was hitting it hard. He didn't need to. He was hitting his spot, and he was hitting with a, a good amount of movement, a good amount of slice on it, and pulling Medvedev off the court and coming in behind it. It was effective. But was he serving volleying wide every time, like a lot of players do? And some players, <clears throat> Francis Tiafo in the semifinal, get burned by it at times, sometimes in big moments? No. Alcaraz serving volleyed with the T-serve on the deuce side a couple of times. You can't be fearful to mix that in, to keep Medvedev on his toes. And then on the ad side, it was a good 50-50 blend. So I thought, um, I thought for Alcaraz, it was a perfect first serve performance. High percentage good spots, good variation, set up the easy first volleys, set up the plus one balls with Medvedev out of position. That's all I have for match analysis. Let's talk about what this all means for Daniil Medvedev, and then we'll wrap things up. Medvedev perspective. It was an incredible run. He surpassed expectations for me at Indian Wells. Uh, only because I think this is the worst hard court in the world for him. And that's why I had him getting upset. I did have him making the quarterfinals, so I wasn't like, you know, that is a run. He had never passed uh, the fourth round at Indian Wells. Uh, but that's why I had him getting upset against an opponent um, who I felt like taking a flyer on. So, he made another final here. And that's kind of the silver lining when it comes to this match. Is that it's the worst hard court in the world that he could possibly play Carlos Alcaraz on. And that is still true. That is still true. In terms of the lack of serving advantage. And in terms of Medvedev's ability to finish through Alcaraz's speed, those two things are going to be a lot better and more favorable for the Russian on any other hard court. So that's the good news. The bad news is that Alcaraz shows to be, and we, and we knew this before, but we had just never seen it. Alcaraz proves to be yet another major rival at the top of men's tennis who can disrupt Daniil Medvedev's defense with his broad arsenal that includes serve and volley, that includes net rushing at the highest level, that includes drop shots at the same level that, we're, that, that we would see from a Nick Kyrgios or a Novak Djokovic, net rushing that we would see on the level of Stefano Tsitsipas, the, the kinds of losses that we saw last year and the, the matchups that he was having trouble with last year, and, and he has corrected 
at least some of them already in 2023. He did pull off a good win against Djokovic. Uh, but Alcaraz represents another guy who's not like Alexander Zverev or not like Yannick Sinner. Players who, look, these are great players, but they don't, they don't really hit Medvedev or poke the Medvedev buttons that he doesn't like being poked. Doesn't hit him where it hurts. Alcaraz does. And the more players who are on tour who are going to be able to do these things at the highest level, the more, you know, that is why I made the statements that I did about Medvedev never becoming number one in the world again, which is still something that I I question, okay? It's not a statement that I'd really walk back. I don't think it, it it's something that, and I don't really want to get into this, um, although I do, I keep seeing comments that Medvedev keeps proving me wrong. I don't see how he's proven me wrong other than making the final at this event. Uh, when else has he proven me wrong? I'm not sure. I'd have to see. Um, like I thought he'd beat Sebastian Corda at the Australian Open. Did he prove me wrong there? Yeah, he did. Did I ever say that he wasn't going to win Dubai? Did I ever say that he wasn't going to win Doha? Did I ever say that he wasn't going to win Rotterdam? No. So where's he proving me wrong? I don't know. But apparently it's something that people like to comment on YouTube that Medvedev keeps proving me wrong. I'm not sure where it comes from. Uh, but that is my statement. If Medvedev becomes number one, again, hold me to it. Then he's proven me wrong. Then he's proven me completely wrong. Until he's done that, I don't know how he's proven me wrong. I had him finishing the year number four in the world. I said he'd have a bounce back season. And that is what he is doing. Can't wait to see what happens in Miami. And I'll have a preview of Miami tomorrow. So look out for that on all podcast platforms, on YouTube as always. Follow me on TikTok. Follow me on Twitter at Gil underscore gross. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks, that's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.